In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Romans. Um, we're going to study chapter 8. Um, last week we studied chapters 6 and 7. Um, chapter 6, St. Paul was speaking about the new life that we have in Christ, and we spoke about how the beginning of that new life uh, was baptism, and that we receive uh, uh, like the, the, the adoption to become the children of God, um, and that we have freedom through the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the ability through the grace of God to be able to overcome sin and to conquer it and to live for purity and righteousness. Also in chapter 7, St. Paul speaks about um, the war between the flesh and the spirit and how we are called to live in the newness of life, um, a different life than we were before we were called to the faith. Um, this week in chapter 8, um, St. Paul speaks about how the Lord is a, a conqueror of sin. And this chapter is a very powerful chapter, um, and it presents the potential of a person to live in the sanctified life. So we spoke about the justification that happens to us in baptism by faith. And here St. Paul speaks um, so much about the, the life of a Christian, like how, how is it that a Christian is to live um, and being able to overcome sin. We speak about, uh, or St. Paul spoke about extensively about how um, the Old Testament law, the, Mos the, the Mosaic law, was not able to grant power for a person to actually follow it and to live it, but it was instead a source of condemnation because when the law came, it told us that we were um, sinners and we were unable to live righteously and did not provide for us any grace so that we could live according to the law. Whereas now in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, because of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can live a life that is sanctified, that is holy, that is righteous, um, not through sheer human effort, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So he starts in chapter 8. He says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So man became carnal because sin has dominated him and become like a, a master to him, has subjugated him. That in the fall, we all became corrupted and dominated by sin. And so we live kind of as slaves in bondage to the lust of the flesh through the carnal lust that we have as human beings in our corruption. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he came to tear us away from this law of sin and also to establish the law of the spirit. So it is not just that we are kind of, uh, we no longer walk in the flesh, but we now are walking according to the spirit. So the, the human being becomes a spiritual being and becomes spiritually inclined rather than being inclined to the flesh. And this is our goal, right? We, we, we've been liberated. We've been uh, purchased uh, at a price. And, and we are no longer under this condemnation. He's saying, therefore, no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because we have received the grace of God and we strive and struggle to live according to this grace in a holy way of living. So we having been purchased and having build, been filled with the Holy Spirit, our goal now in this life is to live sanctified, is to 
to to focus on the spiritual things, identifying that the spiritual things that we have received and that we are made of spirit is of far more value and eternal value than the physical, carnal, earthly things. And so this is a big part of our spiritual struggle is to not just perceive reality with our five senses, but to perceive the true reality which goes beyond the five senses, okay, which is, which is through faith. For us to believe, to understand, to see the real spiritual realities that are around us, to believe in faith that there is an eternal life, to um, comprehend and understand what is it that God is telling us and how he's asked us to live and to no longer desire the carnal fleshly things, the things that used to bring pleasure, the things that used to be kind of the, the source of our, our happiness. Now we look at those same things and we see that they are of very little value because they are temporary and the joy that they bring is temporary and they actually bring bondage and slavery and lack of self-control and self-destruction through those things that we used to pursue as being a source of happiness for us. Now we identify correctly because we have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We look at those same practices that we used to practice and now we say, I now realize and identify that these things are of no value, they're useless and they damage me and they are self-destructive. So this is the law of the spirit. Again, as St. Paul categorizes the three types of people, he, he speaks about the carnal man. The carnal man is the one who is completely caught up in the carnal desires, and his whole purpose is to satisfy every impulse and every carnal desire that he has. Then he speaks about like a step up from that, which is the natural man. The natural man is a person who is not necessarily hedonistic, not necessarily living for pleasure alone, not necessarily narcissistic and selfish in every way. They try to live according to the natural law. They try to live according to um, what one person would consider to be like a good moral system, to be a good person, to help people and so on, but not to the level of being a spiritual person. Still, the focus is on the earth and the things of the earth. Then the, the highest, the pinnacle, um, what St. Paul describes is the spiritual man. The spiritual man is the one who leaves the earth behind. So even though, yes, he is made of flesh, that, that he is physical, but he doesn't live according to the physical. He lives according to the spiritual. And he does things that maybe the physical, the natural, the carnal, they look at him and they say, we do not understand your way of life. We don't understand how you are living. We don't understand the decisions you're making because he is making decisions and choices that are not about the physical world, but are about the spiritual world. For instance, the person who is fasting is denying themselves something good, something that, that people enjoy, like all different kinds of food that we enjoy. A person who is fasting chooses to leave this behind, something that maybe people looking at us would, would be confused by that, saying, why are you doing that? What is the purpose of what you are doing? Well, we do it because before our eyes is the spiritual, before the physical. We are not as interested in uh, f satisfying the flesh and saying, yes, I'm going to eat the food that I like and give myself pleasure with this food because the, the spiritual benefit that I have from denying myself is greater than the, f the physical benefit that I have from eating this food. And so we, we train ourselves. We practice self-discipline. So this is an example of the difference between the being kind of focused and, and led by and directed by the, the flesh the law versus the law of the spirit, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do in that it was weak 
through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay? So what is, what is when he says the law could not do, for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh. This means, like to say that the law was weak through the flesh, it means that our in our carnal nature, in our fleshly nature, we were unable to fulfill the law. So, so it, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The law did not impart in us the ability, the grace, the power to follow the law. So it was weak in that it was insufficient to grant us the ability to, to obey it, to follow it. Okay? So what is it that God did? He sent his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh. This is what St. John Chrysostom says. He says, it is as though the law was intended to make people righteous, yet was unable to do so. Right, the, the law was intended to make us righteous because in a perfect ideal scenario, when we know the law, we now know how to be righteous, and so we choose to do according to the law in order to be righteous. Okay? That was the intention of the law. Therefore, the Lord came and opened the gates of hope through faith. In this manner, he has achieved what the law desired to do. Indeed, he has achieved through faith what the law could not accomplish through the letter. That is why he said, I have not come to destroy the law, right? He did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He came to enable us to be able to live according to the law of God. And this is uh, when it says God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh. So what does it mean when he says the son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Christ in his incarnation, in order for us to be able to receive the benefits of salvation from his crucifixion, he had to have in, in his fullness the full human nature, right? He has to be fully human. That's why in throughout the history of the church, anytime there is any opinion of anyone who comes and proposes the idea that the Lord was in any way not a full human being, we consider this to be a heresy. And the reason it's a heresy is because if the Lord Jesus Christ was not a full human being like we are, then, then we would not benefit from his sacrifice. He died for the sake of those who have the nature that he has. And so we have his same nature, the human nature. But the difference is that, and that's why it says here, the likeness of sinful flesh is because even though he took upon himself the full body, right? But he did not have sin. Okay, he did not have sin. That's why he doesn't say he took on the sinful flesh. He took on the likeness of the sinful flesh. So that when someone looks at the Lord Jesus Christ, they see just a normal human being. Because in every way, he was a normal human being. The thing that he did not have, that we all have, was the corruption of sin. Okay, but on the cross, what he took on himself was all the sin of humanity on himself. Okay, he accepted it onto himself, but he was he was his his, uh, his incarnation and taking the human flesh was not in corruption and in sin. Okay, um, do you have a question? Yes, go ahead. Bruno, I, my mind has just been blown. Um, earlier, I was having a thought about the law uh, in the Old Testament, uh, how you offer sacrifices, perhaps. Uh, 
because you have sinned. Um, and and uh, now you're talking about how Christ has come. He has fulfilled the law. I, you know, I, I, I'd say that many times myself, that Christ has fulfilled the law. Uh, all the prophecies, I was thinking, he's fulfilled. Uh, but it seems to me that what we couldn't accomplish before in the Old Testament, we were corrupted. We couldn't heal ourselves. We couldn't truly fulfill the law, as we've been saying. But Christ, Christ, him being perfect, him coming as fully man, was able to fulfill the law to its greatest extent mm -hmm. by giving himself up on our behalf. Is that is that correct, or is there something I'm missing? Yes, that's exactly right. So as as a human, he did what all of humanity could not do, right? That's why he took, he was a substitute for us. That's why when the punishment that he received, the death that he received, instead of our punishment, that's why, it, that's why he was a substitute for us in that sense. And that's why he had to be fully human, right? So in, ev in everything that we lacked, he made up for us. So by being, you know, by, by being a human being, he, he set everything right. He set everything in the right direction. The things that we lacked that could not do, he did it for us on, on our behalf. Yeah, very good. So, the last part here says, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is exactly what you were saying, right? He condemned the sin so that the righteous requirement of the law, meaning the requirement of the law that God asks us to fulfill and to follow, that we were unable to. So through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We mentioned last time about how when we speak about the idea that we do something in Christ, and we always use that terminology, in Christ. In Christ means that we are hidden inside of Christ. We are participating with Christ in everything that he does. So that means that in baptism, what do we say is baptism? Is the death with Christ. On the cross is baptism. We are participating with Christ in his death. And when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we are again participating with Christ in his resurrection. Here, as the Lord is fulfilling the law, we are participating with him. Okay? So for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, it is, it is, it is God attributes the righteousness of Christ to us. So we, we become the righteousness of God. Because Christ is righteous and we are in him. You know, just how the, the you know, when, when we talk about Adam and we say that the sin of Adam condemned all of humanity because we were in Adam as a humanity that participated in the sin and that's why we all fell. Okay? And so some people will say, well, that's not fair because we were not there and we did not do this, commit the sin. Okay? In Christ, we are also in him and, and participating with him and receiving the blessings of him even though we did not actually do those things. He did them again on our behalf. Okay? So, so we are getting the, the blessing, you know, indirectly from the second Adam. Okay? The second Adam, just as we received the condemnation from the first Adam. Okay? 
So in addition to being released from this condemnation, we are also enjoying righteousness. You know, St. John Chrysostom, he says um, that when, when he's speaking about righteousness here, the righteous requirement of the law, he, he's not speaking just about the concept of the absence of sin, but he's speaking about the enjoyment of victory. So through the, the fulfillment that Christ made, we are enjoying the victory over sin. So righteousness is not simply the abstinence from doing evil, from committing sin, but righteousness is being adorned with goodness. Just as God is not simply the absence of evil, but he is the source of good. Okay, so what does this mean? It means that for us to be righteous, it doesn't just mean that we are avoiding doing evil things. Okay? It means that we are proactively pursuing righteousness and holiness, that we are adorned with virtue. You know, in Galatians 5.22, when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, these are all positive things that appear on us as believers through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not simply the lack of the vices, right? It's not just the lack of vice, but it's the adornment with the virtues, okay? This righteousness that he's speaking about, as St. John Chrysostom says, is the enjoyment of victory. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So those, again, who are living a carnal life, they care about the things only of the body, only of the flesh, only the physical needs, only the physical desires, and so on. And the pursuit of the spiritual things in their lives is absent because either they don't believe in the spiritual things altogether, or even if they believe in the spiritual things, but they are not actively pursuing the spiritual things. So their spirit is dead because the spirit is not being is not active it's not being used they are quenching the work of the holy spirit just like a, a a body that is dead like a dead body does not seek food or water right because it's dead like a, a body who is dead does not even pursue the physical things because the body is dead so also a spirit that is dead does not pursue the spiritual nourishment or the spiritual things right so so here he's saying if we want to benefit from and participate in the righteousness of God and benefit from all the things that the Lord has done for us, then we have to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Okay. This is a pursuit. This doesn't mean that we will not have failures. This doesn't mean that we will not make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we will not fall into sin. It means that our goal and our direction is one of pursuing the Spirit. This is what we want. We want to pursue the Spirit. We are not wanting to pursue the flesh. So this is important for us to understand. We are pursuing it. Just because we pursue something doesn't mean that we are 100% always meeting the goal and the target every day, every time. No, we. But, but our goal is there, and when we fall short of the goal, we ask God to forgive us, and then we get up and continue walking toward the goal. This is very important, okay? This is a very important aspect for us to follow the Spirit and not to follow after the flesh. Four, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, okay? Being carnally minded is death because the carnality is, is going to die. The, the flesh is going to die. Our life is temporary and will end in a physical death. So all of the investment that we put into the physical 
yes, it has some temporary benefit to us, but ultimately, it is of no eternal value. It is of no ultimate value. It is only of temporary value. So if someone is carnally minded, it means their whole focus is only on the physical, on the material, on, on, on pleasure, on the physical needs, okay? That is death. It is like the person is already dead. You know, it's like the person is, has, is not even living because it is it, the, the, the person has focused so much on the things that are dead. Like St. Paul considers all of the physical and temporary things and sinful things to be already dead. So it's like we are meditating on things that are dead. Okay, but to be spiritually minded is life. Life because it is eternal, it continues to abide forever, and it is peace because we find comfort in that, right? There is no comfort to be found in the carnality because no matter how pleasing it might be to a person in the moment, the pleasure is fleeting. The pleasure does not remain. So the carnal person the carnally minded person does not find any abiding peace separate separate from God because God is the source of peace. So if God is a source of peace and I'm not pursuing God, then I will find no peace. You know, again, I always use this example in, in the book of Jeremiah where the, the nation of Israel were, were, were going after, uh, they were seeking military help from other nations, okay? Instead of turning to God and asking for his help to protect them from their enemies, and God considered this to be uh, idolatry, kind of idolatry, because instead of coming to him, they are going to these other nations. And he would always give them these analogies and, and, and he would speak to them about how they are trying to find life in these broken pots that cannot hold water. And they're trying to drink from these broken pots that cannot hold water, whereas he, on the other hand, is the fountain of living water. So if he is the source of peace, we go to him, we find peace. If we go to anything else other than him, we ultimately find emptiness, barrenness, sadness, depression, self-destruction, okay? Um, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, okay? The carnal mind is an enemy to God because God is trying to lift us from the carnality in our minds and this is actually the state that we were in before we became believers the state we were in before our baptism the state that we're in away from God God is lifting us from this natural state and again here St. Paul is addressing both the Jewish people and the Gentiles who are in Rome and and he's saying you used to live in a carnal way Okay, but you have been redeemed and you have been purchased. So do not go back to the carnal mind again, which is to be an enemy of God, because in carnality, we are not subject to the law, right? We are not living according to the standard of God. We're not living according to how God wants us to live, and we are incapable of living how, uh, how God wants us to live. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please him, cannot please God. The carnal person rejects God's law and this carnal person cannot understand God's law. The carnal person looks at the idea of prayer and it's nonsense. The carnal person looks at fasting and it's nonsense. The carnal person looks at all the ways of worship and it's just nonsense because it's, it's not physical. Only the physical is what can be understood. Only the physical can be related to by a person who is of a carnal mind, not the spiritual. 
they don't see past the the way that they feel and the the, the emotions that they have in the moment and the way the, the things of the body and their desires and so on they don't see beyond that so then those who are in the flesh cannot please god wait this is the what we just read um in Acts 3.19, it says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I really like this verse because it speaks about these times of refreshing, right? Like, when we repent of our sins, when we are converted, our sins are blotted out, and we experience this refreshment. Like, a refreshment is like, feeling like this sense of peace and comfort and, and happiness um, and, 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 and kind of rejuvenation that we experience because we turn away from sin. We often, and people who are living in sin and in some slavery to sin, don't realize how much the sin that they are committing is actually causing them great suffering. Great suffering. That, that only when this bondage is broken that then we can look back and see how much we were being negatively affected by the sins that we were committing and the wrong mentality that we had and so on. And so, of course, God knows this and sees this. He sees the bondages that we have, and he wants to break us from this bondage and to increase our faith and to give us a life of peace. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Because, again, he's speaking to the believers. He's saying you have left behind this um, life of the flesh, this carnal life, and you are living now a spiritual life because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Again, because how is it that we become children of God? We spoke about this. We become children of God through the adoption, which is through baptism. So if someone has not been baptized in Christ... They have not been adopted as the children of God, and so they are not his. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Right? The body is still has been corrupted by sin and ultimately is destined to die. The body will die. Even those of us, obviously, who are baptized and who have the Spirit of God, we will still die. But that death, that physical death of our body, is not going to translate to eternal death. And actually, the physical death of our body is what allows us to enjoy eternal life with God. So this is why we, we actually look forward to this. We, are, we look forward to the physical death. You know, maybe it's hard for us to do so. Uh, and I'm not saying that maybe it's not something that, that gives us some kind of fear. But ultimately, in faith, we look forward to this because in this, we experience the fullness of the life with Christ. So, so even though the body is dead in sin, but we are living by the Spirit, which is life because of the righteousness that is in us. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected, 
so also we will be resurrected. Again, in Christ, everything he experiences, we experience. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Once more, St. Paul deals with the topic of resurrection, as this is what inspires hope in each person most positively. It grants each a warranty or a guarantee of what will happen to him as he lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not be afraid on account of your being burdened by a dead body. Like, don't be afraid because we have this physical flesh that is going to die. May you accept the Spirit so that you will definitely be resurrected again. And this is our hope. We place our hope in the resurrection of the dead so that even though our bodies are perishing, and yet our spirit will continue to live. Is there a question? Yes. Uh, not kind of not really anymore because you answered it. Um, but I guess having, we have our corrupted bodies and it was in our corrupted state that we at now uh, accept Christ, right, through baptism. But we still maintain our corrupted bodies. Um, and we'll, we'll still hold those corrupted bodies as long as we live in this world. But you say that um, we will receive new bodies in the second coming, right, uh, at the final judgment. And I guess because we still hold these corrupted bodies, that's why sin, uh, why we have so much weakness, like you mentioned once to me. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, the reason that we are still easily tempted, the reason we still enjoy sin, the reason we go after temptation is because of the corruption that is in our nature. We have not been perfected, right? We, we have now through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we have the ability and the power to overcome sin, but it's still a personal choice. So I can still choose. I still am, um, you know, given the option. Okay, so here is sin. And here is life and righteousness. And we now have the ability to choose life, whereas before we did not. But it's not something that compels us. It's not like after baptism, we are compelled to do good and only good. No, we still have choice. Only when we put off the corrupted body and our only spirit, and, and, and that, that we at that point are going to choose and want to do good only and never to commit sin. Like the angels. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 5.15, St. Paul, he says, And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Okay? So if we are, we, we, our life then, having received this gift of salvation from Christ, our life is no longer self-focused. Because again, the, the carnal person is very self-focused. All they care about is their own things, their own desires and fulfillment and so on. Whereas the spiritual person realizing the magnitude of what Christ did for them, they are no longer self-focused, but they become Christ-focused. Should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Having realized and seen the great uh, gift and the great sacrifice that the Lord made, so then out of our love, our response to him 
is one of genuine uh, thankfulness, sincerity, sacrifice, offering ourselves, and so on. So those who place their trust in the flesh and they choose to remain carnal, they will not reap the benefits of the Spirit. Okay, so this is why he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, right? This goes back again to the idea that salvation is all tied up with the concept of death, okay? We said, again, baptism, which is the beginning of salvation, it's death. The Lord Jesus Christ, in order to save us, he died. The process of sanctification is this continual process of putting to death the deeds of the body. The reason it's death, and think about it in this way, the flesh desires to please itself. This is, this is its whole desire, is to please itself. And so by not giving our flesh the things that it wants, it is like we are killing it. Okay? We, are, we are killing it by, by not offering it the things that it desires. And so it begins to, to, to wane. It begins to diminish. It begins to um, weaken. And the spirit, conversely, strengthens. Okay? But the moment we begin to give the flesh the thing that it wants, it begins to grow. Okay? We see this very clearly. Like, again, I'll go back to fasting. During the great fast, probably the time of the year where the church has the maximum amount of attendance. Okay? And, and the time maybe where people confess the most. And the time where people maybe attend the most liturgies and take communion the most and do all kinds of things the most. And they're the most ascetic out of the whole year. Okay? Because we are denying ourselves, like we are, we are making an effort to deny our flesh. And so we find that during this time, the spiritual activities become easier. They become more fulfilling. They become more attractive. They become something more desirable for us to do. But then during the 50, holy 50 days after the great fast is done, this is maybe the time of the least church attendance and the least confession and the most eating and 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 all kinds of sins that people fall into why <laughs> it shouldn't be you know <laughs> but why because we are now doing the opposite we are letting ourselves go we are not putting strong boundaries we are not being as ascetic we are not being as intentional we, everything is looser now you know we are not we're not as vigilant or intentional as we were before we're giving ourselves a break okay and in this break a lot of things go south okay so Putting to death the deeds of the body makes, and, and, and so also, prayer is more difficult. Like all the spiritual activities are more difficult. It's harder to go to a Bible study. It's harder to pray. It's harder to do a lot of good because we are now kind of, our, our flesh is, is, is kind of <laughs> coming back to life again, right? This is why, you know, like when we practice certain kind of um, asceticism, like trying to give up certain things during the great fast, the intention is that we can not necessarily go back to the way that things were before the fast started. Like, so for instance, if somebody cuts down on the amount of media that they watch, or someone cuts down on some practice that was causing them to fall into sin for the great fast. Okay, well, when the fast is over, let's see if we can maintain, at least partially, some of the gains that we've made not necessarily to go back exactly to the way that things were before because you have now trained yourself to live in a different way. Let's not lose all of the benefit that we gained by training ourselves to live in a more disciplined way. Let's continue that moving forward. So this grace that we received, this work of the Spirit that is in us, 
helps us to put to death the deeds of the body. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Okay, so what, what is he saying? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay, so those who have received the Spirit, and as we said in baptism, we receive the Spirit of God in, 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 in chrismation, we become the sons of God, the children of God. Okay, so in baptism, we receive this spirit of adoption. This is why it's called adoption. Adoption because we, are, we were not the natural children because we were estranged and separated from God. But in baptism, we become the children of God and the co-heirs with Christ because the son is the heir of the father and we become brothers and sisters of Christ children of God and all of the benefits that the Lord Jesus Christ himself enjoys we also enjoy okay because again we are doing everything in him right in him so we are co-heirs um this is why we can also say uh, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba Father we can actually call God Father whereas before we could not call him Father he was not Father. He was God. But we, could, we did not have that relationship with him to say that you are our Father and we are your children. This, this came through adoption. Okay, For as many as are led by the, by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And he says you did not receive the spirit of bondage because in baptism and in this... Um, state of being filled with the spirit of god we are set free from bondage we are no longer in bondage to sin but now we have been liberated okay we have been liberated the jews if you remember they believed that because they were the children of abraham and because they were circumcised then this made them to be children of god Okay, then this made them to be children of God. So in that sense, they demanded that anyone who wanted to be a Christian would be also circumcised because in their mind, salvation was tied up with the concept of circumcision, tied up with the concept of the Old Testament and all of the practices and so on. So here when St. Paul is saying this, again, he is addressing both groups. Remember in Rome, there is both the Jewish group and the Gentile group, and they were both kind of at odds with one another. The, the, he's addressing here the, the two groups. And to the Jews, he's saying to them, it is not because you are circumcised that you are the children of God, right? It is those who have received the Spirit of God that can call God to be Father. And this applies to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. So salvation is not through a, a ritual like, like circumcision. The, the salvation is through the receiving of the Spirit um, of God. And as we said uh, here where he says and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if 
and this is this is the part he adds at the end. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So what is that? Like all the stuff that he says up until there, like sounds good and makes sense. But then he's bringing in this concept of suffering. Where is this concept of suffering entering into the whole picture? Because everything was receiving the Spirit of God, becoming the children of God. We say, Abba, Father, the Spirit dwells in us. Um, uh, all of those things. Okay. But then he throws in this, uh, this concept of if, if all of these promises we receive, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. Okay. So we have to understand and accept that Christianity requires suffering. It's not, it's not an optional thing, and it's not something that we can manage to escape from, and it's certainly not the prosperity gospel message that essentially says in Christianity you avoid all suffering because God is going to prevent you from suffering. No, actually it is required to suffer. Okay, so what is the form of this suffering? Is it like this artificial kind of we hate ourselves and we want to be punished and we want people to harm us? No, okay? There's several types of suffering that someone who is a genuine Christian will experience. The first suffering is the suffering with Christ in baptism, okay? Because this is a death, right? So this is a spiritual suffering. It is the acceptance of all of this through the baptism, which is the death with Christ. Remember, baptism is the cross. Baptism represents the cross. We are dying with Christ. The second kind of suffering is struggling against sin because we are placed in a world that is full of sin. And then St. Paul is saying, but you can't be carnally minded. So everything around me is carnal. All the images I see are carnal. All the people around me are carnal. All the goals of the earth are carnal. I am told that to be successful, I have to be carnal. And in every way, there is this message of carnality that is bombarding me all the time. And we are living in this world. And Christ says, and God says, don't be carnal. Don't, don't, don't live like the carnality. Don't live in this way. How am I not going to live in this way? If, if, we, are, if we, are, we are bombarded with it. So St. Paul says that through the grace of God, we are able to conquer the desire for carnality. So we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome, whereas before we did not. The carnal man and the natural man, they live according to the world system, not according to the system of God. So God is not, cannot ask us to live according to the rules of heaven and to the spiritual rules and to be spiritual people without giving us some kind of ability. Okay, some kind of ability to live that way. And that's exactly what he did. He gave us the ability. He gave us the Holy Spirit. So in the Holy Spirit, I can choose to live above the carnality of the world. Okay, I can live above the carnality of the world. But this is not automatic. This is not just the press of a button and it starts to happen. This is still a struggle because, as again, St. Paul has spoken about, um, is the war between the flesh and the spirit, which is continual. So this unending to the last day of our life war between the flesh and the spirit is suffering. This is a suffering, a form of suffering that we must suffer because 
exactly what uh, St. Paul was describing in Romans chapter 7, where he's saying, the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I hate that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. So this is the war that even St. Paul himself, you know, speaking as a human being, as a member of our human race, is describing the struggle that we all experience every day. Okay? This is a suffering. So if we want to benefit from all these blessings that the Lord has done, we have to participate in this suffering, which is the spiritual struggle. And this is why we do everything that we do. Okay? Because we are struggling against, we are denying the flesh. We are fighting against the old man. We are, we are pushing it away. We are seeking strength from God. We are desiring to live holy even while we are carrying with us this corrupted flesh that we continue to carry up until the end of our life. There is this very nice passage from the book um, The Ladder of Divine Ascent written by St. John Climacus and I would never be able to paraphrase it well enough like he wrote it but it's a very beautiful passage speaking about how he is you know struggling that you know he he fights against his flesh he denies his flesh but then he also needs his body right like he denies his his appetite in fasting but if he doesn't give his body food it will die you know and he, and so th this the spiritual struggle that we experience is trying to balance between what our bodies actually are it's healthy for our bodies and our what is necessary for our bodies versus what is excessive and and perversion like even when we speak about money money's not a bad thing we need money if we didn't have money how are you going to live we have to have money we spend so much of our life studying and learning so that we can have jobs so we can have money but then we say oh but money is dangerous if you, if you start to be attached to money, then this can lead you down a very destructive path. And the scripture says what? That the love of money is a snare, something that can bring people down and can destroy them. You're telling me to, to avoid something or to be careful of something that I absolutely must have. This is the spiritual struggle. You know, sometimes the extremes are easy. It's easy to say, I'm never going to do this. It's hard to say, I'm going to do it, but not too much. Because that, that is where it really requires a lot of discernment, right? How can we live in the world and balance everything? This is the spiritual struggle. And this is a kind of suffering. It's a suffering because <clears throat> our nature is not that way. Our nature wants the excess. And two, because we are in a world that is surrounded by sin everywhere, right? A third kind of suffering is the suffering of persecution, the attack on our faith, whether it be a physical attack or an emotional attack or a social attack, every type of attack that we as believers endure, that people say about us that we are delusional, that God does not exist, that we again, we are, we are pushed to try to deny the existence of the spiritual, whatever persecution we experience whatever negative consequences we experience as a result of our chosen way of life you know i think it was it was last time that i mentioned you know a lot of times people will say well there are certain tv shows that i like to watch and most of them are good most of the show is good but there's these certain bad things about the show and maybe we fall into sin because of these bad things so this is then, again, a choice that I, that I have to make. This is a kind of persecution, okay? Because essentially, 
there is something good that I cannot have because of the bad that it's covered in. It's like you have like gold that's covered in poison or covered in mud. Okay? You can't get the gold without getting dirty with the mud. And again, it's a kind of persecution because, because the world is structured in such a way to, to attract us to sin. Okay? Of course, there is more direct persecution as well that we see in many places and, and even here. Um, just directly against our faith and attacking our faith and, and, and treating Christians as being less than anyone else. Another type of suffering we endure is the suffering of enduring trials because part of this process of sanctification that God said is that he will allow trials to happen to us to purify us. So he's saying if you want to actually endure to the end of your life and have salvation and grow in your spiritual life and be protected from harm and and then you have to be tried you have to suffer the suffer of tribulations that i am allowing to you so that you do not fall into sin the the thorn in saint paul's side was a perfect example he said remove the thorn and god said no i'm not going to remove the thorn because my strength is made perfect in weakness meaning if i remove the thorn then you are going to maybe be puffed up in pride and fall. And so to keep you safe, again, because of your corrupted nature, you must endure the thorn. So our corrupted nature is a disease, right? It's like, it's like anyone with a disease that has to take a medication or have a procedure done to them, like someone who has cancer, who has to do chemotherapy for years and years and years. The chemotherapy is better than the consequences of not having the chemotherapy because if you didn't do the chemotherapy, maybe the person would die. So you have to do the chemotherapy. But the chemotherapy is not pleasant. It's not something good that I want to do. Just like the trials are not good in themselves, it's not that God wants us to suffer. But if God did not allow the suffering, then maybe the consequence on us would be worse. So again, a consequence of our corrupted nature and that we are trying to live godly is that we might need to endure trials that help us from falling, trials that strengthen our faith, trials that keep us from becoming like the rest of the world. So this is also a kind of suffering. So all these things are suffering that we as Christians experience. So this idea that Christianity is just about being happy and wealthy and, and every blessing, no, that's not it. By design, it cannot be. Because the moment that we receive everything that we want, what happens to us, maybe we forget about God altogether. That's who we are. That's We have to be honest. That's who we are. So God cannot allow that. God, does, out of his love and his goodness, he doesn't want that to happen. So as much as even a parent suffers by disciplining their children but they do it because it is good for them and if they do not do it then the outcome will be worse okay so so here this when he says if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together so the ultimate goal of all of this suffering is not just to suffer for the sake of suffering as though suffering is a virtue no it's the glorification 
Now, having endured and having experienced and having gone through all of the trials and everything and the persecutions and the struggle against sin and having been baptized and all this, now is the time for glorification. And that glorification is eternal, never-ending glorification. This is why St. Paul says, the light affliction which you are enduring for a time is producing an eternal weight of glory. That's why he calls the trials that 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 we experience in the world as being a light affliction even though they don't feel light to us like they don't we wouldn't describe them as light but god in his eternity says this is light you know kind of like a young child might like get super super upset and start crying because a, a toy broke that they that they have and the parents look at that and like well we're sorry it's okay that's not the end of the world right because the parents have a perspective that maybe the children do not have. So we are like that child who fails to see or is unable to see the bigger picture, the fuller perspective, to where when those light afflictions happen, we can identify them as light afflictions. To us, they seem like it's the end of the world. But to God, it's the light affliction. Because you, if you endure this, you are going to experience something you haven't even imagined. You know, like what, what Christ said to Nathaniel, after uh, Christ spoke to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel believed in him, and Christ said to him, you, are, you react this way essentially just because of I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You are going to see the heavens open, and you're going to see angels, and you're going like, to experience these glorious things that you've never even considered. And that is what our life will be. But maybe it's hard for us to realize that now. Just like someone who is in kindergarten has a hard time imagining what it's like to be in college. But it will happen. Like, it's just a matter of time. <coughs> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Exactly. Right? The sufferings we experience, are cannot you cannot compare them. They're not on the same, like, level to even compare them to the kind of glory that we will receive. St. John Chrysostom, he says... Note how he soothes the spirits of the wrestlers and elevates them at the same time. Having indicated that the reward is greater than the hardships, he urges them to endure many more without becoming haughty. They need to bear in mind that they have to continue to win in order to receive crowns as their reward. Right? So he is preparing them ahead of time, saying, hey, you want to be a disciple of Christ? Let me tell you what to expect. This is what you should expect. But as you're going through this, don't lose hope because the glory that you will receive is far greater than the sufferings you will experience temporarily. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So here in the next few verses, St. Paul is like personifying the creation as though he is taking all of the creation and he is treating it as though it is like a person, okay? So he's saying that all of the creation which originally was created in perfection, that God created it as good, that fell into corruption because of the fall of man, because of the sin of mankind, all of creation fell. All of creation was corrupted, not just the human being. So he's saying all of the creation, it's like waiting eagerly 
for this ultimate glory that St. Paul is speaking about to be revealed. The revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God means that all of those who are the righteous, all of those who are the faithful, all of those who are the believers, the children of God, will, will, they will be revealed in their fullness of glory. Because on the earth, maybe it's hard to identify them. You know, people don't look necessarily at a, at a Christian and say, this is a son of glory. No, maybe we see them as being someone who is just a simple person, maybe suffering, whatever the case might be. There's nothing special about them in any way. You know, looking at them from the outside, like from the worldly perspective at them, they're an insignificant person, right? But what St. Paul is saying is that these are going to be the sons of glory. These are the ones who are going to be the ones who are elevated to become united with God, to live eternally in heaven, to be the rulers and the judges, right? These are the ones, the ones whom now are living in suffering and in meekness, just like the Lord Jesus Christ himself lived a pretty obscure life, his entire life for 33 years, and only the very last part of his life he started to preach and to do some things, but at the end, he was still seen as the carpenter's son. At the end, he was still crucified. At the end, people mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And they considered him to be a weakling and a fool. And yet he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, when he returns again, he will return in a glory that everyone will see and they will know. And everyone who blasphemed him will know how wrong they were. So also, again, everything the Lord experiences, we experience it with him. So just as he suffered, we also suffer. And this is the sufferings we're talking about. But at the end of the suffering, just as the Lord comes in glory, so also we are revealed to have all of this time been the sons of God, even though no one knew it. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to be the Son of God, even though maybe nobody knew it, nobody believed it. But it became clear and evident through the resurrection that he was not just a man. So also in, in the revealing of us as the believers who live these simple, meek, suffering lives, that all of the creation is like anticipating, impatiently waiting for this moment of the restoration, the moment of the revealing of us to be the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So because of the sin of man, the creation was subjected to futility. Futility meaning like vanity and, and corruption and the, the, the temporary nature of everything, that everything is in a state of destruction and, and corruption, disasters and pain and, and all of this futility that was introduced into the world that God had not intended or created it with. And yet the creation, again, this is a personification, the creation has hope of restoration right? The, there is a hope that the restoration will come because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And here, St. Irenaeus, he considers that the word creation in this context is used to describe the body because the human body was subjected to corruption at the time of the fall. But we know that ultimately the body is not evil and that God created the body as good, and God is going to grant us the glorified body. He is going to resurrect 
the corrupted body that dies and give it a new nature and make it to be a glorified body. This is what St. Irenaeus says. It is fair that in the same creation in which they toiled and suffered while armed by all means of endurance to be worthy of reward for their endurance. Moreover, in the creation in which they were slaughtered due to their love for God, in that same creation, they are revived once more. So speaking again about the body, like the body who endured suffering, the body who, who was slaughtered, like in the case of maybe someone who was martyred, the body who was slaughtered due to their love for God, in that same creation or in that same body, they are revived once more. This is the resurrection of the body. In the creation in which they endured slavery, they reign. For God is rich in everything, and everything belongs to him. Therefore, it is appropriate that the creation itself is transformed back to its first condition, submitting without any resistance to the authority of righteousness. This is why the resurrection is necessary of the body. Because if the body simply died and disappeared or dissipated and remained in corruption, right? then that would mean that the thing that God created was overcome. Like that God himself created something that he could not sustain or maintain. But again, God turned death that yes, there is a death, but ultimately there is a resurrection again and a transformation of the things that died into something that is glorified. Yes. In the previous verse, um, why does it say not willingly? Because didn't we choose futility? Well, here again, he's speaking like metaphorically about the creation. So he says, for the creation, like the, the, as of all of the creation, everything that God made was almost like, in a sense, a victim of our choice. Oh, so creation here is not us. So in this verse, St. Irenaeus interprets this to be speaking about the body. But the, 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 the whole kind of, this whole passage where he speaks about the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. He's speaking generally about all of creation. Yeah. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors, <coughs> groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Okay. This is like the, the giving birth to the resurrection. Kind of like saying, just like a, a, a pregnant mother has birth pangs and is suffering until the moment of the delivery where her child comes out. And when the child comes out, that's like the, the, the time of joy and rejoicing. Okay, But until you reach that time of rejoicing, you are going through suffering and pain. So it's like all of the creation is in like the, la the you know birth pains, like is in labor and suffering and suffering until the ultimate revelation again of the sons of God, which is like the giving birth to this beautiful new reality, which is the reality of the kingdom of God reigning. And they're no longer being corruption and they're no longer being sin and, and all of creation is rejoicing in this. Yeah. Until um, now you were talking about um, how everything will be renewed. Um, 
in 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 the beginning, um, in the in the book of Genesis, um, in the garden, there are two trees: the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then that of life. Uh, when when we sinned, we were not permitted to eat the tree uh, from the tree of life because if we did that, we would live in immortality in our sin, in our suffering, and so uh, God kept us from that. But in the second coming, when we're given new bodies. Everyone will be given new bodies, right? And so even those who have chosen to sin, it's, it's as if they would have received the fruit of life. And so they will be entrapped in that state of suffering. Is that correct? Yeah, that's why even St. Paul, he speaks about those who do good will be like experience the resurrection of life. And those who sin and live away from God will experience the resurrection of condemnation. So it's still a resurrection because all bodies will be resurrected but not all bodies are going to the same destination. Yeah. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Okay, so not only all the creation, but we ourselves as human beings who have received the Spirit of God, we also have the same hope. We are groaning within ourselves. We are, we are like, like yearning, eagerly waiting for this redemption, eagerly waiting for the fullness of salvation to be revealed. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Okay, Here's what St. John Chrysostom says about this. He says, he wishes to say the following. I wonder, had you not submitted to countless sins? Had you not been despairing? Had you not been convicted? So what has saved you? Hope in God alone has saved you, as well as your trust in his promises and blessings. There is nothing else that you have and that you could offer to him. If that is what has saved you, hold on to him too. He who has offered you such great blessings would never deceive you or rob you of the blessings to come. He has found you dead, broken, imprisoned, and hostile, and he has made you a friend, a son, liberated, righteous, and an heir with him. He has offered you great matters such as these, and which no one expected, having enjoyed such generous gifts and love, would he betray you in the matters that are to come. Hope that is seen is not hope. Meaning what? The realization of everything that we're talking about hasn't happened yet. That's why we're speaking about it in the terms of hope. Like we hope for something that we have not yet received. You know? Like like if somebody if somebody gives me a great gift and I already have I already have it with me, I don't say I hope for it because I already have it. So we are saved in this hope. We are still have hope for something that is in the future. We have hope for something that hasn't come yet. And that, and for that reason, we await it eagerly, right, with perseverance. St. Augustine, he gives an example of like having an egg that we know it will eventually hatch. So while we have the egg, to us, it's not just an egg, but the hope of what it will become in the future, okay? So we wait patiently for the egg to hatch. It's like we have received salvation, we have received all these things from God, and we have it. We call God our Father now, 
but we have not yet received the fullness of what it will become in the future. And so we wait eagerly in hope. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So in this suffering, in this struggle, like he's giving here a message of hope. Even though we are in the struggles now, and even though we are eagerly waiting for the fullness and the revelation of the sons of God and all of the fullness of salvation and all these things and the resurrection to come, and even while now we are in the state of suffering, but we are not alone in our struggles because the Spirit of God helps us in our weaknesses, helps us in our struggles, helps us to overcome them, helps us to struggle against sin, helps us to overcome, helps to give us peace and comfort in the midst of trials. In all these things, in the, the Spirit of God working in the sacraments, all the Spirit is, is helping us in our weakness. And the Holy Spirit even helps us in our prayer. So that even as we are suffering and don't even know what to pray to God, and yet the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and like praying for us and on our behalf and with us, even when we do not know what is it that we should say uh, uh, to God. This is a good stopping point. We still have like another maybe uh, 11 verses or so. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. And we thank you, O Lord, for revealing to us the magnitude of your love and showing us how much you have done for us and for our salvation. We ask, O God, that you help us to remain faithful and to remain hopeful for the completion of all of your work of salvation in our lives and that you help us to be focused, O Lord, on our day-to-day -day life and into how to live in a holy and righteous and sanctified way before you. We ask, O Lord, that through the work of your Holy Spirit in us that you sanctify us and change us and help us, O Lord, to stay away from the carnal things of this world and to live only according to your Spirit and that only in this spirit we find peace and we find comfort and we find life and we find, O oh God, a detachment and a freeing of the bondage of this world and instead an attachment only to the heavenly things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.